The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Professor Michael Buxton. Michael's retiring and I thought it would be a good opportunity to catch up with Michael and reflect on his career, although most people hate having those interviews about their career in hindsight, but also some of the challenges for planning and what pearls of wisdom you can offer to our listeners. So first I'd start by asking how long you've been at RMIT and how you came here in the first place. I've been at RMIT just under 20 years and I came here out of the state government. Uh, I was working in planning and then the EPA and uh, the Kennett government sacked me so it was either um, go and retire or look for something else um, or uh, figure out what to do and then the, the RMIT planning area was in a state of great transition. The department had been broken up and the landscape component went over to architecture and the planning and environment, environmental policy part went to um, the social, what was the social science department at the time. So it was a merge department. So it was quite interesting because it amalgamated areas that had been quite separate and it had to form a whole new area, which is now global studies, um, urban and you know the social social studies area so that was the beginning of all that and how in the time you've been here what are some of the biggest changes to life in a university or planning in a university i mean often getting merged and regrouped well i think the biggest change has been in university management and administration um when i came across um in 1998, the, we, we basically had control of our own destiny. Um, the university was run, as most universities were then, by the Committee of Deans and the Vice-Chancellor. Um, uh, there wasn't a corporate culture in that sense. It was a traditional um, university run basically by academics and their senior representatives. So admin, administration and management was decentralised into the schools or the faculties. We had our own HR, finance, decision-making capacity. Um, and it meant a huge amount because when I came across, I felt that we had to change our entire course structure and content. Uh, we only had three equivalent full-time students in our post-grad area. Um, we had no research students, um, no research money. And so we were able to rewrite all the undergrad courses and the po new post-grad courses uh, in and get them through in two months from go to wire. And, and by your raised eyebrows, you know that that wouldn't happen now. It'd be two years now. <laughs> so if we, and, and, and the, the, the faculty, the environment and planning area was in 
arrears, substantial arrears. Um, we needed to get money in. We only had five full-time staff, and it was um, there was talk about closing down the postgrad. It's now the biggest postgraduate program in planning in Australia by far, and I think probably the biggest research group. Um, but all that was going to close. So we had to get money in, and we were able to do it because we rewrote the, the courses, postgrad and undergrad, and we targeted a whole new group of people to come and do planning and environment. Um, well, we targeted initially um, state government and local government planners who, who were ambitious, um, beginning and middle level people who wanted to get promoted and who really wanted to do a, get a postgraduate master's program. Mm-hmm. under their belt so they could become managers and um, I just felt there was a huge market for that and in addition we were able to do what you couldn't possibly do now like get um, the uh, names and addresses of every planner in the state and direct mail market them. <laughs> like so, snail mail marketing. Yeah, yeah we, just, we just did up targeted brochures, we had a targeted marketing program uh, we targeted our work at who we, who we thought were interested, so we were able to do a classic kind of targeted marketing program with a whole lot of cross um, uh, marketing techniques through doing all sorts of other things, um, and um, so we basically um, got a lot of those people into our program and. And what kind of skills were you offering them? Is well, that, and has that changed? What oh, it has changed. Yeah. There was no proper statutory planning um, and legal set of subjects in the program at all. Uh, we were putting out planners who didn't really had never worked on a planning scheme. There was no integration between theory, strategy, statutory work, urban design. Um, nothing was properly integrated, so we we worked. We, we really wanted to give people a lot of practical design, strategy, and and statutory skills, and relate that to a planning history and theory culture. You know, so that people graduated from our postgrad and undergrad planning courses who who had a series of specific skills but could relate it to a background set of you know, concepts and a real conceptual basis. So I, I don't know how successful that's been because we've, we've, we, we've put out the majority, you know, we've graduated from RMIT, the majority of the planners that are working in local and state government at the moment, right? And, and you're not... not and I don't know what's changed. Um, mm. They're wonderful people. They're out there doing their best, but they've moved into a progressively deregulated planning system, and a lot don't stick it because they're grinding out permits, and mm. and there's very they feel there's not enough capacity to be influencing things. Um, I think, in retrospect, we should have had a whole component of the courses that we taught into change management. The psychology, the thinking of how to achieve change. We thought that if we taught all this through the various subjects, it was a kind of language across the curriculum approach. You know, we thought if we if we taught all this through the subjects, it would work. But I'm not convinced it worked, and I think we should have. You know, we had a wonderful opportunity for 20 years to be influencing planning culture. Um, 
you know, I don't think enough of our people are in senior management. I don't think enough have gone into politics. Mm -hmm. You know, we should have really had a change regime in there that uh, specifically targeted how do you how do you actually achieve change? I think that's our mm. biggest failure in a sense. Yeah, and you have the high turnover rate for planners, and as you said, people don't necessarily stick with it, or they come out into the world of planning and don't feel like the skills that they had. Maybe that they're not, they could be applicable, but it's just very challenging world out there too. It's very, very hard. I, I don't underestimate how difficult it is. Mm. Um, we, we also had you know, this environmental management and policy component of our course. So we, we targeted the environment and planning connection. And we had the social science connection through our social science group in, in the new department. So we, had, we got off a social environment and planning. And I think with our environment graduates, um, we linked that into a, an environmental science double degree. So people have come out with a policy management and science degree, um, or double degree. And um, uh, we've, we've had people... Uh, I think with a quite discernible different sort of mindset often um, you know our best planners are out there really doing their best to change but the environment students were um, temperamentally more interested in change mm -hmm. uh, very radical in a sense uh, the best students I've ever worked with really though are just um, they were really involved, and uh, I think they've they've had a real go at trying to change things. But again, you know, some of them have gone into politics, some of them have ended up, but they've tended to end up in community groups trying to influence change. And what I hoped that we would get out of our planning and environment graduates were people who made sure they got into senior management and got into politics and understood the politics of change and, and, and went about um, achieving that change, um, it's just proved, I think, a lot harder for them than I thought. Oh, look, it's fundamental. It's, it's changed a lot. Um, when I came to RMIT, um, you know, I was a, a refugee in a way from a more regulated planning culture. That was what I was brought up in, in local and state government. I worked in state government for 12 years and I was involved in local government politics for, you know, for another, another six years. Yeah, this um, is really interesting. But... Um, that was a much more regulated traditional culture. Um, and when I came into RMIT, it was at the end of the Kennedy era. Um, there were huge hopes in 1999, a year after I came, that the Brax government was going to bring in a more uh, interventionist approach to planning in Melbourne and define up the kind of desirable outcomes. There was some hope initially that they were going to do that through the introduction of, you know, legislated urban growth boundary and, and some other interesting changes, but it died away and it proved to be, um, I think, uh, illusory on the whole, particularly when John Brumby um, became Premier and Justin Madden became the, the, 
planning minister, and um, they completely undid everything that Mary Dallahunty, as the planning minister, really tried to do to bring in, you know, regulated urban growth um, zones and um, green wedge protection and a regulated urban, legislated urban growth boundary. So that Kennet culture is in a lot of ways even worse than what it was then under the current Labor government, which is going about bringing in um, a, a developer-led new planning system to basically bring in code assessment and get rid of permit control even. The Kennet government moved a whole lot of um, prohibited uses over to Section 2 uses, so they they weren't prohibited, but they were still subject to permit. What this government's trying to do is to remove even those permit controls and to put them all into as of right uses so they'll be governed by codes and, you know, there'll be a ticker box approach to planning. And I think the other major change has been this, this, this high-rise culture that's um, taken Melbourne over. Um, there were basically no residential high-rise buildings being built in, in the late 90s. It began under the Brax government and it took off under the Brumby government. Uh, so Melbourne is now one of the, you know, the most noticeable high-rise cities in the world. Um, it's now competing in scale with some of the, the, the most expansive high-rise Asian cities, but it's certainly one of the half-dozen um, dominant high-rise Western cities, and that, that's a totally different um, But we're still culture. having a fair crack at the urban fringe as well, so we're going... Well, we're doing both. So we're building this high-rise city in the inner and, and central cities and in the, in the major activity centres. And we've got some of the worst examples of urban um, low-rise and wasteful expansion on the fringe. So we're, 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 made, we're making two fundamental errors with our cities, with our, with our city and, and our suburban areas. And, we're leaving a city that is just unsustainable in both those senses. You know, we're, we're the worst of the worst in both senses. Um, and I don't see any change in that. I mean, this, this government is now um, waiting until after the election. They've put off their plans to completely deregulate the Victorian planning system and they're waiting till after the election and they're just going to king hit the Victorian community and Melbourne community with the worst of their new deregulated system and the Liberal Party's probably going to do the same so it's a no-win for the residents. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is you've won the RMIT Media Award several times. You're well known in, in the media as a commentator. What do you think the best role for an academic is in these kind of public policy debates and what can we in the university really offer apart from um, criticism? Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's the key question today for academics. And it doesn't matter what field we're in. Um, academics are in a privileged position. They get a chance to research and write as part of their job. And you know, there's, there's, there's the dominant academic culture that you, you do your research, you write, you publish, and you move on to the next research and publishing. There's, there's just far too little interest in connecting policy and change with our research. And our teaching, we've talked a bit about the teaching, so if we move to our research, I think academics collectively have got to figure out how to become change agents and 
strongly influence policy. And there's a number of ways to do that, and we've got to figure them out better. You can um, transmit the results of good policy to government by not just sending off the report, but actually networking it and working hard to get to get change brought in. Now, you know in doing that that you're going to be up against vested interests like the Property Council, and the Property Council are going to say, we don't care about um, the results of research into high-rise effects, for example, or out of urban sprawl. We don't care about that. All we care about is just leave us to do what we want to do. Now, academics have got to figure out how to counter that. And one way to do it is to is to um, harness community support. You know. So I think there, much, must, there should be much stronger ties between groups of academics and community interest groups around political change and actually putting pressure on governments in key marginal electorates, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's five inner urban electorates that are, that are hotbeds at the moment for reaction to high-rise. Where are the academics out there working with them to generate an agenda and figure out how to get community interest to um, actually teach um, political parties that if they don't react to really key planning issues, they might lose their seats. Now, that, that focuses the mind, but, but academics aren't out there enough. Mm. I, think, I think a lot of Melbourne academics are really working very hard to try to build connections like that, and I think that's really great that some Sydney academics are doing this, but um, too little is done. So we've got to figure out collectively how to relate our work, our research, to a policy agenda and a political agenda, and um, I think we can do that. I think academics could be a really major force for change in this, in this, in this society, but we're not, we're not there at the moment. I mean, there's connecting with existing residents that don't want high-rise, but I think equally important will be connecting with people that actually live in high-rise and what's their experience and um, mm. what are the lived outcomes of policy and, and trying to communicate that back. But, and I mean, this, this, this rebounds in the ballot box. I mm. mean, the things that politicians notice most is... Look, look, look at the debate at the moment on infrastructure. Mm. People have been carrying on about... We've been filling Melbourne with high-rise and low-density low sprawl without the proper infrastructure for over a decade. Right? And it's <laughs> mm, at least a decade. And it hasn't had any real impact. Um, there's been no money for infrastructure. All of a sudden, both federal and state governments are putting untold billions into infrastructure. It's nowhere near enough, mm. but it just shows you that they're now reading the tea leaves. Mm -hmm. So that's what can be done if academics could actually progress that type of issue into all sorts of other issues. Mm. Um, but we, we're, not, we're not there. Some of us, I'm not speaking for myself here, but many people actually just don't have time for... I mean, that's a part of... Um, it's a cop-out, but for many people in university, the teaching load and the workload, the other stuff they have to do already, and then on top of that, now I have to connect with community groups. Um, that's one answer. That's also in the context of uh, increasingly casualised university where more than half the mm. teaching is done by people that have paid pittance mm -hmm. on very short-term contracts. So it does, I think, limit your capacity. It does, and I think, as we said, a lot of academics are doing their best, and we can point to lots in Melbourne, mm. you know, who are really trying. Um, 
But it is a matter of inclination too. I mean, if we look at the whole climate change debate um, from you know, back in the 80s, but particularly in the early 90s when climate change became a perceived reality and the, the climate scientists tended through the IPCC to do their work as scientists, work through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and then pass over their findings to the policy makers through um, to the politicians um, to make decisions through the conference of the parties. And so you had this separation between science and political decision making and not enough scientists got out there and tried to change public opinion by lobbying, by um, producing results in a public way. They certainly sent it all on to the decision makers, but um, they realised, I think, too late that the debate was being lost to climate sceptics. So into that vacuum stepped the, stepped the climate sceptics who said, thank you very much. Um, we're very happy to fill the vacuum. We've lost 30 years in climate change decision-making. I mean, I, I, I think if the scientists had actually worked very hard, 2,000 scientists on the IPC, working with the IPCC work process, um, to work change in attitudes, we might have had effective change by the policymakers long before. We still haven't got it. We're not going to get it in 2020. So, you know, academics, not just in planning and environments and so on, academics generally are in a very privileged position. They do their work, but they don't often um, know how to sell their work to the public or the politicians. Uh, and often they're not interested in doing that. They're, they're very, you know, they're relatively insular. A lot of academics, they like to just do their stuff. Well, we've got to do better than that as a group. Probably, um, you know, if you get involved in local politics and community politics, it's a, it certainly focuses the mind on change. Um, I mean, being in state government politics, you had to work, and you could work in those days as a bureaucrat to actually change things, working very closely with politicians. So I guess that does change uh, your perception of what you can achieve. Um, for example, when I first came here and... Um, Matt Boland was the, the head of media and media um, and, um, and public relations basically and he, he became Mary Delahunty's um, mm. chief of staff so um, I worked with Matt closely and Matt was uh, the key person in government who actually brought the attention of the potential to have a legislative urban growth boundary to the minister, to Mary Delahunty who was very interested but it never would have happened without a key person mm. like him, but we were able to go and use, so we used that network approach at that time because it, it could work. It's a lot harder to do now because the property industry is so dominant. But it was at the beginning of the high-rise boom and the government wasn't so beholden to the property industry. I mean, the government's getting, um, this year it'll be about $9 billion from property-related 
taxes and land taxes from the property industry, and that wasn't happening to mm. that extent. So um, you had the ability to use a networking approach um, to great effect. And at one stage, we got the Premier, his Chief of Staff, the Planning Minister, her Chief of Staff, myself and some community groups in the one room. And out of that room, we got an agreement to get a legislative urban growth boundary. Mm. Um, now, that would be, I think, impossible to achieve today. You, you just wouldn't get that. And you reflect on the fate of the urban growth boundary and how it's been, it was legislated but then changed. And then expanded. what, and I think that illustrates the change mm -hmm. in politics, you know, because when Brumby got in, um, Mary Delahunty had gone, she protected it, um, and Brumby was um, uh, very much... Um, working with the property industry and we were very, very responsive to it. Um, and he changed the urban growth boundary together with the Liberal Party. So I thought once we had, um, once we had, the, once the government agreed to bring in legislation, it needed approval of both houses of parliament to change it, which is the strongest level of protection for a planning measure. And, uh, but it didn't work because the same property people were lobbying the opposition as well as the governments and they both colluded to change the urban growth boundary and completely wrecked the whole of Melbourne's future planning. It's very hard to counter that. Um, so the different models that we're talking about are you know, your networking, uh, lobbying, um, but you know, providing the results of research, working with community groups to build political change, Another way is to get out in the media and try to change attitudes yourself. And I think academics have an important role to play there. But the downside of that is you, you cheese all the politicians off. <laughs> and so that's an incompatible approach <laughs> to the networking, um, to the networking approach, yeah. approach, right? So if you want to network, you network. But the, what we have now in, in all parties are the most precious group of politicians that have ever represented people because as soon as they see you utter the slightest hint of criticism in the media or publicly they won't talk to you anymore yeah it's very they, real time isn't it oh they get they get all they get all precious and they i mean ministers and ex-ministers pass me in the street and they won't talk to me. They won't even say hello. They I can't mean, be seen with you. <laughs> well, not only that, well, public servants can't be seen with you, but the ministers <laughs> won't even acknowledge you. Yeah. I've had, I've had uh, ministers at public functions and I've gone up to them to say hello and, you know, be sociable, including ones that I've been hosting here, for example, and the ministers just walked away, you know to the embarrassment of the minister's um, <laughs> advisers, advisers, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're, contra they're, they're incompatible approaches. So, you know, once you go public, but there is a role for, for public criticism. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Mees had this exact same dilemma and yeah. um, everyone comes up against it at some stage. And I think it's very handy then to have people who are networking and people who are critical yeah. publicly, you know, yeah. and this needs to be thought out. But again, there's a really important collective role by academics here.
springs to mind? Oh, look, I, I mean, sometimes I think I achieve more in one week in local politics and state government than I have in 20 oh, years wow. <laughs> at RMIT. Um, look, I, I think the research program uh, has been it has been a really interesting and enjoyable part of my life. But I think I think that we collectively have put out a lot of really useful and important research. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we spent about one and a quarter million dollars on peri-urban research and millions of dollars on broader ranging research through the through this, you know, high-rise and peri-urban and other research programs, brought in a lot of money, put out a lot of material, and not only published it in referee journals and book chapters and so on, but got out into the popular media, tried to, you know, really get into a range of different um, um, publication types, you know, that went around to all sorts of different groups, um, so we, in, including conference papers, but all sorts of community group work and lots of lots of different media uh, look I, I think that's it's, I mean it's the best thing about that is it's there mm. you know it's out there maybe a politician one day might read some of it the problem is that state government bureaucrats I, I think still read research yep. um, some of them take great pride in reading research and I, I, I admire them for that because their time's pressed as well but they do they try to keep up Politicians don't read anything anymore, mm. excepting for one-page briefing notes. And Twitter feeds. And Twitter feeds. And what we're seeing with Trump is just the ultimate expression of the new political class, right? Mm. They, they deal in, you know, a limited number of characters and they cannot get their minds around anything complicated. You go and talk to them. And I've, I've, I've been to brief ministers in recent years... Um, and I mean, I had a, I've had, without mentioning names, you know, one-hour briefing sessions with certain ministers. And after ten minutes, their minds starting to go off into multiple directions. They can't deal with it. And you present the research, you talk it through, you have written stuff, you have their advisors, you try to engage in debate and look through the whole thing. And their attention span is, you know, is like two or three minutes. And after 10 minutes, they're starting to go spare, you know. Um, so it's, uh, it's quite difficult to get your research to be into a political framework um, and have ministers read it but look it's there mm. all that all that research is out there and it's able to be used it's being used by students it's yeah. been it's, it's been read by lots of community groups mm -hmm. um, uh, and now with the new research dissemination techniques you know mm. it's um, it's getting around to much broader groups um, and then, you know I think you would have found the same. It's it's it is interesting to see who picks up your research and yeah, sends you a note. Yeah, it's very unpredictable. So, mm. look, I think it's. I sometimes wonder whether I should have spent twenty of the best years of my life pumping out research, you know, results. I, I don't know. Honestly, I I think probably I could have spent the last twenty years in a much more productive way. But but you do leave the legacy of the, as I say, the outcome, and someone might make use of it. 
That's Maybe. what we'd like to tell ourselves. We do like to tell <laughs> ourselves. And look, it's been a really enjoyable, interesting process. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The, the research students and the culture's been just wonderful, you know, just working with people, um, producing all this stuff. And Speaking of stuff, Michael, your, your office, which is still um, impressively stocked with papers, um, you've spent, I understand, you've spent a month filing it. Where's it all going, and is that all interesting stuff as well? I mean, yeah, I've got a collection of planning documents going back to the 30s and the 20s. Um, mainly because as everybody left the public service and academia, they dumped it all onto me, and the only place I had for it was to pile it up in my office. So it ended up being like the you know your classic corridor down the middle of piles of newspapers. There's been newspapers, but mm. so there's. Uh, two and a half to three thousand volumes of material in there that um, uh, we're going to the school has now decided to keep and yeah, we're cataloguing yeah. and so hopefully it'll be made available to um, to people like PhD and honor students are now doing work on planning history and issues like this so yeah. Um, it's, it's incredibly hard to find this stuff. It, yes. It's not the planning library, the EPA library, the transport library all got thrown out. Mm. Um, virtually none of it was digitised. Mm-hmm. University libraries don't want this stuff, yeah. but it's there's a lot of highly technical, scientific, and policy-related work. It's not just the policies; it's all the background mm-hmm. research behind it. You can't get that anywhere anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's right through back to the early studies of Melbourne's um, underlying conditions leading to new planning systems. So mm. it is really important stuff and hopefully that's... And we, we have PhD students doing work now on Melbourne's planning history and so on and lots, mm-hmm. of, lots of us are all interested yeah, in this. Yeah. So that'll be available and hopefully we can add to it because other people have got this material and mm. there's nowhere to put it. Yeah, and otherwise, you know, there's this grey zone between the current digital face that is presented by government, and then there's 20 years ago hard copy things, and everything between tends to get lost. So I think a lot of people are trying to catch up with how you archive that and make it available, because amongst other considerations, having access to these historical planning documents is part of how you understand what you mentioned before, cha- how you instigate change mm. or how things actually change. It helps to be able to look at what happened. And some of us like digging through things like that, but it does help if it's mm. uh, archived properly. So. No, it is a real, real issue because some of this stuff is only available in um, maybe in the parliamentary library mm-hmm. and the state library keeps copies of Public some of it. Public records office has some. Public records office. But a lot of this stuff never made it to there and it's like for example you know our biodiversity research through Sarah Beckersey's group mm-hmm. um, there's heaps of background biodiversity studies done that led to the you know new zones put in and mm-hmm. so on that, that goes back 30 years you know and there's there's volume after volume both at a federal and a state level and at a local level sometimes so that will be available for future researchers and yeah it's, it's great that the the schools decided to keep it you know i agree because well, i was worried it was just going to get you'd get sick of sorting through it and just turf it. well it would have gone into my shed <laughs> into my garage and, and and there's lots of people i know that kept stuff for a long time for example the old metropolitan planning scheme the mmps it was chucked out there were um 16 six versions of it going back decades and um 
I think they digitise the last one, but to do, I, I went to do some research into the old border works um, peri-urban zones and compared them to the Labor government one and then the, the Matthew Guy zone. So I compared the three types. And the only way I could find the Melbourne Metropolitan Planning Scheme zone was that there was one copy left in the planning library at the time, and that's gone because <laughs> they got rid of the planning library. And when I did some earlier research... I hunted through a whole lot of people I knew who used to work in the planning department and one person had taken his stuff home and put it in his garage. Huh. And garage effect. It was the garage um, reservoir, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, well, thanks for speaking with me, Michael. Pleasure. And I'd like to, you know, last opportunity for you to make a zinger about planning in Melbourne. What's the top thing you'd like to see change for planning in Melbourne? The top thing... Well, there's two things, really. I'd like to see an end to all high-rise in Melbourne. Uh, it wouldn't have any real implications for density at all because we know you don't need high-rise for density. You define high-rise as...? Anything over 10 storeys. I'd like to see any building constructed prior to 1914 protected absolutely. Um, so we need, we need a complete revision of our heritage protection, right? Total revision, as other countries have. And the value amenity is a critical element of livability, well-being and economic success. And we just regard them as all as heritage as completely separate. Heritage is a critical part. And I just find it amusing that state government planning ministers every year get on planes and go over to European cities and love them, right? And they come back and let this rubbish happen. So there are two things. And I think thirdly, an end to outer urban development as we know it. Um, a complete revision while we still have time. I mean, it's terrible what's going on in these suburbs. It is absolutely appalling, um, to, you know, to go out to the other side of Tarnit and down to um, Clyde and so on, look at these places. Um, we just need to completely revise the density provisions and the urban design concepts of our outer urban development and our use structures. Um, and uh, integrate that with proper rural planning so that we just protect our agricultural and rural areas. So none of this is hard. We've put it to ministers. We've given them integrated packages of what you can do when they don't want to do it. So I think we've just got to keep at it to try to get these positive steps to, to stop Melbourne becoming total, totally dysfunctional mm -hmm. and, of course, to integrate it with proper infrastructure and transport provisions. We can do all this, but um, we've got to work hard to do it. Yeah, that'll be uh, the rest of us who aren't retired. <laughs> So what are you going to do in your retirement? I'm going to write. Keep writing. Right. <laughs> That's the classic thing. You'll probably be more productive when you retire. But, um, yeah, do a lot more writing and a lot more of the writing I want to do. Yeah, that's great. You know, less, less planning and more... Uh, I've got an interest in um, warfare and military theory yeah. and stuff. I want to do more of that. And I've been doing some literary work. I want to write that. So I want to do more of my writing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Possibly after two years, got two years worth of planning stuff and environment stuff to do, and possibly never write another planning word again. <laughs> yeah, I can see. I'm, I'm surprised that that you've maintained the, the enthusiasm. I have my doubts. I mean, we talked uh, earlier on about turnover, and I have to admit that I've had many moments where I just think, can't be bothered. I think we've just got to keep at it because it's too important. You know, we're talking about the the stake that. 
eight million people eventually will have in living in a city mm. like Melbourne and the rural areas, and we're talking about, you know, something that affects so many people's lives. Um, we can't give up on it yet. We've got to keep at it, you know, and hopefully get a breakthrough. I like that idea. Thank you very much, Michael Buxton. You have been listening to This Must Be The Place.